Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. The show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome, listeners, to another enlightening episode of the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. Today, we're diving into the intriguing world of one of history's greatest minds. Get ready to unravel the mysteries of the universe with a presentation that promises to be as captivating as it is enlightening. Our esteemed guest is Smithsonian Associate Stephen Gimbel. Stephen Gimbel will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our website for more details about tickets and much, much more. Smithsonian Associate Stephen Gimbel is a distinguished professor of philosophy and associate professor of Jewish studies at Gettysburg College. Stephen Gimbel brings a wealth of knowledge and an unparalleled passion for his subject. Stephen Gimbel's upcoming presentation titled Einstein's Space and Time offers a rare glimpse into the life and legacy of Albert Einstein, far beyond the chalkboard of theoretical physics. Picture this. The early 20th century, a period of tremendous scientific and political upheaval at its center, a figure who would become the most iconic scientist of all time, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein's theory of relativity didn't just redefine our understanding of space and time, it sparked a scientific revolution that challenged centuries of established thought. But there's more to Einstein than just E equals MC squared. Professor Stephen Gimbel's presentation delves into the fascinating duality of Einstein, the scientific and the outspoken political advocate. Today, we will hear about this era of Einstein's life, where his theories brought him both fame and notoriety. Einstein stood at the crossroads of science and society. We will learn all about Einstein's wielding of his intellect in the face of death threats and political turmoil. For our audience, this presentation is not just a history lesson, it's an exploration of how Einstein's moral principles and political engagement shaped not only his life, but the world as we know it. It's about understanding the human side of a genius who used his mind to ponder not only the stars, but the societal challenges of his time. So join us as Smithsonian Associate Professor Stephen Gimbel takes us on a journey through Einstein's space and time, uncovering the lesser-known aspects of Einstein's life and work. It's a presentation that promises to be as thought-provoking as it is enlightening, a true testament to the enduring legacy of a man who reshaped our understanding of the universe. So stay tuned. Let's embark on this remarkable journey together. Please join me in welcoming Smithsonian Associate, Professor Stephen Gimbel. Stephen Gibble, welcome to the program. What is wonderful to be here with you. It's so nice to talk with you, too. We are going to be talking about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation titled Einstein's Space and Time. This is such a fascinating <laughs> subject. I, I am not a scientist at all by any stretch, 
but I really have come over over these uh, as I've gotten a little older. I'm 66. I have really appreciated science. I think that's probably the best way to put it. But I love scientific. Uh, oriented interviews. And so this one is exciting for me. I know our audience is going to be equally excited to hear from you. Why don't we start right there? Maybe maybe just tell the audience briefly what you're going to be talking about when you talk about Einstein's space and time mm-hmm. at your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. And and I guess I'll add to this, just to lengthen this, this <laughs> intro here. Um, since we're all on Zoom these days, maybe tell us how you're going to use Zoom to engage us. Oh, thank you. Uh, so the talk will be about Albert Einstein and not only getting into his science, but seeing how his theories actually came out of the cultural context in which he lived. So science is often taught as if it is, you know, sort of words of the gods that come down fully formed. But the fact is scientists are people. And people think things because of who they are, where they come from, what's going on around them at the time. And so what we're going to do is contextualize Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. So you will absolutely leave this talk able to explain it to someone at your next dinner party. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that we'll we'll show how what he was doing, what he was thinking, you know, how a, a patent clerk in you know, Bern, Switzerland at the time comes up with this completely novel approach to space, time, motion, uh, and that it comes out of a lived context, which is political, which is religious. And so what we'll see is that science is a part of life. So how am I going to use Zoom? Well, some of it will involve, you know, some uses of some cool graphics. Some of it will be being able to simply speak directly to people. I know Zoom seems like it's a, an alienating medium, but what's <laughs> I found, you know, it's uh, an educator who used it, you know, necessarily over those two very long pandemic years is that we figure out how to use the camera to make things feel a little bit more intimate so that you can actually speak a little bit more closely with people. So I don't know that my Zoom use will be anything completely novel, but as someone who has been trapped in Zoom world for a couple of years, you know, I certainly don't dread it the way I once did. <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to be a really um, eye-opening and uh, uh, impactful, uh, insightful presentation. I think I think that it it's going to lend itself very nicely to Zoom and seeing you and, and hearing more about your work. Let's talk a little bit about Einstein's work and, and in particular the work about the his theory of relativity because we we hear an awful lot about that. I, I don't have a solid understanding of it, but I don't think the scientific community had a real positive reaction to it and understanding of it immediately either once Einstein developed this long-standing model. And, and maybe tell us a little bit about that because I think it's worth you know, within this conversation of of Einstein as a person, you know, he was a patent clerk, and yet here he is coming up with something that was just so radical and a just a monumental shift in scientific thought. And that's absolutely right. So Einstein 
graduates college. He can't find a job working anywhere as an assistant professor, which in those days literally meant an assistant to a professor, uh, was actually thinking about selling insurance at one point. Hmm. And then a friend of his from college had a father who was connected in the Swiss civil service, and he gets a wonderful job uh, working as a patent clerk. But he has these ideas that he had been developing and working on, and ultimately does in 1905 publish a, a series of five papers the last two were his theory of relativity and they were barely noticed uh you know the, the thought now we, we we think of these theories as groundbreaking as completely changing the landscape of science but at first in part because no one knew who this guy was they were largely ignored, also because what he does is challenge the theory of Isaac Newton. So Newton's mechanics had been the most important scientific discovery in human history. For 300 years, Newton's physics just reigned absolutely supreme. And now suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this person who gives us a completely different picture of how space and time works. It just it – just, seemed unnecessary. But over time, there were a couple of first uh, early adopters. One was a man named Hermann Minkowski, who just happened to be one of Einstein's college professors. Now, Einstein was not a good college student. So the myth is that Einstein was bad at math. Einstein was not bad at math. And we know this in two ways. One, we have his report cards. <laughs> he was getting top marks. We also have letters from his mother to his grandmother. Now, if you're a Jewish mother whose son is doing very well in math, what are you doing? You're quelling, right? You're, you're bragging, right? <laughs> and we have those letters. So we know Einstein was actually quite good at math. But what was interesting is he was a terrible college student. He thought he knew better than his professors. And so he would cut class often. And one of the classes he would cut was that of Hermann Minkowski, who was a very shy, nervous person who would largely face the board when lecturing and mumble and people couldn't hear him well. So Einstein thought, I don't need this. And so when Einstein's theory of relativity came out, Minkowski was one of the first who realized how profound it was. And he started doing work himself in relativity and reformulated the theory in a way that frankly made Einstein quite angry because he thought that Minkowski was just showboating. He was taking these fancy new mathematics and making his common sense theory, he thought it was a common sense theory, look more complicated. Uh, in the end, it turned out that what Minkowski did actually opened the door to Einstein's development of the theory later on. But it's from Minkowski that we actually get a lot of the myth. So Minkowski was a mathematician who then started dabbling in mathematical physics. He had this student who was not a very responsible student. And so when Minkowski started writing and speaking about relativity, he would rib his former student by saying things like, you know, Einstein's not very good at math, and I know because I'm the one who taught him. So instead of taking it as this sort of good-natured uh, mocking from a, a teacher to a student, those of us who have had hard times in math classes 
would hear what Minkowski was saying and go, oh, well, Einstein wasn't very good at math. Well, the story is actually a little bit more complicated. He was good at math for a physicist. <laughs> and mathematicians and physicists often have these debates over who's smarter. And so mathematicians love making fun of physicists for not knowing any math other than the math they needed. And so that's really what was happening there. But with Minkowski, we started to have a development of the theory that ultimately, uh, 11 years later, ends up with the general theory of relativity, which is where Einstein becomes the, the worldwide celebrity. So his teacher may not have had too much of an effect on him when he was in college, but he was an essential character in launching the Einstein that we all know and love. And so on the heels of that, then let's, let's jump to uh, Einstein's public persona a bit because he was an avowed pacifist. He had a great mistrust of authority. He was very outspoken uh, about the social times. What did his scientific platform, uh, in terms of political advocacy, how, how did that role shape the public's perception of him, especially against the backdrop of what was going on in, 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 during these times? That's a great question. So Albert Einstein, from his earliest days, just had a deep disdain for authority, for mm -hmm. anyone telling him what to think. And that uh, stays with him his, his whole life. As a young child, uh, he grew up in, you know, uh, Germany that was just recently made a nation. And so there would regularly be military parades through the streets. And he just had a, a visceral distaste for the uniformity, for seemingly the closed-mindedness. And so he is, from a, a very young age, a pacifist. He leaves Germany when uh, his family business uh, closed down. His father and his uncle ran a, a manufacturing business for electronics parts. Uh, they had to relocate to Italy. And so Einstein follows along, renouncing his citizenship in order to not have to serve in the German military. He ultimately finishes high school in Switzerland and is living with a, a history professor who himself was a pacifist. And there he really finds his political self. And so he has a deep distaste for anything martial. Now, he ends up lured back to Germany with just a wonderful job offer, an offer he, he couldn't refuse. But he, he gets there just before World War I. And it was the event he had been fearing his whole life. He, he saw what the militarism could lead to. And at this time, you know, in Germany... You know, just before World War One, German industry, German science, German art was really uh, best in the world. And so they saw this as their opportunity to finally be the sort of uh, lead actor on the global political stage, right? Everyone else in Europe had had their chance to be the great power. This was Germany's moment. And here was Einstein opposing the war that, to everyone else in Germany, was going to be the event that really put the German nation on the stage, that put them in their rightful place. And so he seemed a traitor. I mean, think Jane Fonda during Vietnam. That was how much 
you know, the, the German public, especially German conservatives, despised Einstein for speaking out against the war that was supposed to be this wonderful event in the history of Germany. Now, not to give anything away for those who haven't seen the movie, but <laughs> World War I does not go well for the Germans. <laughs> right. Uh, the, they don't do well in the sequel either. But right. Right. the idea is that he then occupies this fascinating place at the very end of World War One, just as it ends. And World War One was just uh, a tragedy of unspeakable proportions. The, the mass death was just it ultimately shocks the european conscious they you know here are people who thought they were the pinnacle of human civilization suddenly reduced to complete barbarity and so at this time of of deep soul searching einstein's theory of general relativity is confirmed so uh, arthur eddington who is a prominent uh, astronomer in England and also a pacifist observes uh, an eclipse. It turns out there's a prediction that Einstein makes that would have differentiated him from uh, Newton. The prediction is verified and overnight you have this strange little German Jewish professor with the strange hair who gets turned into a global celebrity. He uses that fame for his political causes. Now he realizes he has a platform and he sees what has been happening as a result of war. And he becomes not only the one of the world's most famous people, but an outspoken advocate for peace and justice causes and makes himself into a political figure, which at home, right, in Germany leads to danger, right? I mean, this is the period between the world wars, the Weimar Republic collapses, you have hyperinflation, you have half of the country blaming the other half, the other half blaming the first half. Things are not pleasant on the ground. And here you have Einstein, who was seen as this horrible traitor during the war, who's now warmly embraced by the Americans, the British, and worst of all, the French. Now, personally at this time, he had just gotten a divorce. His kids were with his ex-wife back in Switzerland. They needed money. Anything that was made in Germany because of the hyperinflation was virtually worthless. So he goes on a lecture tour to countries that have hard currency, which just happened to be the former enemies of Germany during the war. And so those back in Germany who already disliked him, Look at him buddy-buddy with all of the people who were killing our brave young fighting men and only see, you know, further evidence that this is a disloyal person, right? And what is he doing it for? He's doing it for personal enrichment. He would have the, you know, the, the lecture money he makes sent directly to his wife so it didn't have to go through Germany, which meant it wouldn't get devalued. Sorry, And as a result, what you see is Einstein becoming this polarizing figure, where on the one hand, he is a voice for peace. He's a voice that says, you know, we need to avoid war at a time when 
and the second war was brewing. And so he becomes to those who were nationalistic as sort of the poster boy for everything that's wrong with intellectualism. For those on the other side, he becomes an idol. Look, the world's smartest man is saying what we believe. And so he becomes a figure that really divides the world. Right now is, is an interesting time because most people, you think Einstein, everyone loves Einstein. But he was actually a very divisive figure at that moment in history. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We're with Stephen Gimbel. Stephen Gimbel is a Smithsonian Associate. We'll be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We'll have links so that our audience can find out more about Stephen Gimbel, his new book, Einstein's Space and Time, and particularly more details about tickets for his upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Stephen Gimbel is a professor of philosophy and associate professor of Jewish studies at Gettysburg College, where we're catching up to him today. Stephen Gimbel, I, I want to talk about this notion of fame that you you just referred to and and his cultural impact because his theories didn't just alter science. They really did influence culture. What impact did Einstein's Jewish heritage have on his work and his political actions? You refer to his pacifism. He had deep moral grounding Yet there was a lot of controversy, and and certainly he faced a great deal of backlash, especially in the face of the anti-Semitic threats that were levied towards him. That's a complicated question. So what's mm -hmm. fascinating about Einstein is for a brief period of time when he's young, he becomes extremely religious. Then uh, when he turns nine, he gives it up completely and becomes entirely secular and throughout most of his young adult life is rabidly atheistic. What's interesting is there's a, an event early on. He, he gets his first full professorship in Prague, which means he has to leave Germany and go over to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so in crossing the border into Austria, he has to fill out the, the immigration paperwork. And there's a form there you know, for her, his, in essence, work visa. So he has to fill out name, date of birth, and there's a line for religion. Well, on the line, he writes dissenter. Well, the bureaucrat says, that's not acceptable. You're Jewish. You have to write down you're Jewish. He says, I'm not Jewish. He says, yes, you are. He says, I'm not. He says, you have to write it down. I won't. And they have a, a, a fight. Finally, the, the bureaucrat says, well, if you do not write on this form that you are Jewish, you can't have the job. And Einstein says, fine. And he turns around to leave. And the, the bureaucrat says, wait, 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 wait. And they find a way to uh, reach a compromise. On the line, he will write mosaic. 
So he will admit that he's of the people of Moses, but he's not Jewish. So what's interesting is here we have, you know, an adult Einstein who, you know, this would have been possibly his only chance at a full professorship willing to give it up just so that on a meaningless form, he doesn't have to admit to a religion. Yet we find him in the in the mid 1930s, the early 1930s, uh, addressing Jewish groups in Germany using the pronouns we and us. And so one of the questions I've had in my scholarship is what happened? What caused Einstein to change his mind to sort of adopt and embrace his Jewish identity? Because you really do see a radical change there. And the answer, I think, is, comes from a couple of places. One is you had pogroms that were happening in Russia and Ukraine. And so you had a flood of Eastern European Jewish uh, immigrants fleeing violence coming into Germany. And he would see these young people who would come, some of them, to his college classes, and he would hear their stories. And his he was just moved. The, the, the empathy led him to just, just, his heart was breaking for these poor people who were his kinsmen. And so in their suffering, you know, he felt the need to embrace them. But at the same time, he was noticing that he had very different just personal interactions amongst a subgroup of his friends. Now, this was Albert Einstein. Who doesn't want to be Einstein's friend? But he noticed he just had different relationships. It just felt different with his Jewish friends. That is, they laughed at the same things. They, they had a certain way of being that they shared in common, a sort of unspoken sort of stance towards the world. And so he came to realize that there was just something cultural that couldn't be eliminated, that wasn't about any sort of ritual or belief structure, that there was something else that made him Jewish. And this was a time when, you know, there were assassinations. He was being, you know, his own life was threatened. He had to cancel public outings. He, you know, falsely claimed to be out in the country when he was, you know, staying in Berlin. And so he thought, you know, I could let the anti-Semites define me as Jewish, or I can define myself. And so his Jewishness is a very complex web that arises from the time. Now, what's interesting is he becomes at this point very close with Martin Buber, who is a uh, rabbi, who is also a philosopher. And what's fascinating is their worldviews couldn't be any more opposite. Einstein is the arch-rationalist, the scientist. Buber, on the other hand, is the romantic philosopher, right, who preaches that you know, we need to reject reason in order to, to have these deeper experiences. And yet they become the closest of friends. And I think it's through that relationship how, in a certain sense, they seem to have nothing in common. Yet Einstein would go to his house for dinner and they would have the most delightful time that it led Einstein to wonder, what is it that is the essence of this Jewishness that I feel? And it's something that actually took him about 10 years to work out. Stephen Gimbel is our guest today. He will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out our show notes for more details about 
Stephen Gimbel's presentation titled Einstein's Space and Time. Stephen Gimbel's written the new book titled Einstein, His Space and Time's uh, congratulations on the book, Stephen Gibble, and all the research and and all of your work. Uh, you've been so generous with your time today. I just really have one question about legacy and maybe lessons learned and how we can apply that to today. Because as you were talking about pogroms and, and I was thinking about Palestinian divisions and suffering and this idea of mutual acceptance in Einstein's own horror at Nazis' anti-Semitism, certainly there are applications that we can learn today. And I, and I wonder if if you can maybe tell us one or two of those important lessons that both contemporary scientists and then all of us can learn from a public figure like Einstein and helping us engage uh, with science and society, even in these times. Ah, goodness. I think, you know, the, the times couldn't be more, in a certain sense, awful. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you look at... Einstein, at the time, you know, sadly, he seemed to have almost predicted it. Yeah. For Einstein, nationalism he saw as a cancer on humanity. That is, he was deeply concerned that national identity, the artificial drawing of lines of us versus them, inevitably just led to reasonless hatred and war. Uh, he and Buber both actually... Uh, did not believe that Israel ought to be a Jewish homeland, right? The idea of nationalism itself, he said, was just going to poison the project. Now, Einstein himself was a sort of Zionist in that what he wanted was a safe space where Jews experiencing anti-Semitism would always have a place they could go that was safe. For him, the Hebrew University was the project that really engaged his heart. He wanted a place of learning, not a place of worship or a place of nationalism, but a place where scholars could come together. He worried that uh, Jews had internalized anti-Semitism and that if only we had a place full of you know, brilliant intellectuals making great contributions, we could point to them as a beacon and say, ah, see, that's us. We can be wonderful. But it's not just a particular group. It's, it, you know, he wanted this for the world. He really was someone who thought artificial divisions needed to disappear. And he worried that any sort of nationalism would lead to, sadly, I think, you know, the destruction and death that we're seeing now. Uh, Einstein really wanted us, you know, to embrace one another, especially the downtrodden. And I think what we're seeing now is a, is a very scary world full of us versus them thinking exactly the sort of thing that Einstein wrote deeply about. Well said, Stephen Gimbel. Thank you again for our time. Our guest today has been Dr. Stephen Gimbel, who's a professor of philosophy at Gettysburg College. We'll be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up the title of Dr. Gimbel's presentation is Einstein's Space and Time. Please check out our show notes for more details about Stephen Gimbel, his book about Einstein, as well as direct links to Smithsonian Associates. I really, I've enjoyed this, and, and I'll just be selfish for a moment, Stephen Gimbel, <laughs> and just say, as you do more work on this subject, we'd love to have you back, because I know our audience is going to enjoy this. It's a, it's a wonderful combination of a person who 
had his feet in a lot of different places and camps and and uh, a lot of different fascinating beliefs and you've shared those with us we're excited to see you at smithsonian associates but please come back and talk to us again absolutely my thanks to smithsonian associate stephen gimbel for his generous time today stephen gimbel will be appearing at smithsonian associates coming up please check out our website for more details about tickets and much, much more, and links to the Smithsonian Associate website. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates, interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast.